Francis Fukuyama said, history has ended. It's that was over. even before you were out of grade school. It's over. I wasn't in the was 1990s. I wasn't even in kindergarten. <laughs> I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Tradesplaining, the podcast that tries to make sense of international trade, business, and expat life without putting you to sleep. On today's episode, we'll talk about the new race to the bottom. Oh, could forget that. Belt tightening at the Belt and Road Initiative, and why Swiss meat makes it one of the top countries in the world. And a little later, we'll be speaking with Carolyn Freund of UC San Diego and formerly of the World Bank. And you guessed it, she'll talk about trade and globalization. Spoiler alert, it's pretty okay. Ish. And as always, we'll have the usual listener feedback and news roundup. So let's get into it without further ado. Welcome to episode 38. It's been a month since we last recorded, but you will be happy to know that 38 is the atomic number of strontium. Yes, that's real. It's a soft, silver-white, yellowish alkaline earth metal that is highly chemically reactive. I think I used to have a necklace like that in the 90s. It's primarily used in glass, not necklaces in this case, for color television cathode ray tubes. Something Rob is well-versed in. We used to have those big TVs with the big tube in the back. See, I was right. Listeners may be wondering, as I mentioned, why the longer-than-usual break in between TS episodes. The answer? It's Rob's fault, as usual. He was on, quote-unquote, mission most of the month. The reason I use quotation marks is because many of my cousins... They can't hear quotation marks. Many of my cousins don't actually believe that I work for the UN when I tell them I work for the UN. They're convinced that I work for the CIA. So when I tell them I'm on mission, traveling somewhere, they naturally think that I'm James Bond even though he's British, but I didn't want to tell him. So yeah, but this also has nothing to do with trade. But while Rob was away, I was kind of interested to see that the Beyond Meat chief operating officer was arrested for biting someone's ear off. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, (laughs) So if people were wondering if it's not meat that's in the Beyond Meat burgers, what's in it? It's probably cartilage. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, folks. They call that the Evander Holyfield burger. (laughs) <laughs> also, <laughs> anything exciting that you come across? Actually, before I move on, Rob, I also wanted to let listeners, but mainly Rob know, since he's standing across from me, that I am now the proud owner of a second moon swatch. That's lovely. Is that activated porcelain? It's activated Otherwise known as bio, plastic? Activated bioceramic. I'm the yeah. proud owner of a mission to Mars. They ran out of mission to Uranus, unfortunately. <laughs> um, it, it's a real watch. I don't know why you're laughing. It's, it's Tiffany blue. I get it. Yeah. yeah. This one is cool though. Anything exciting that came across while you were on quote unquote mission? Very much so. I know that you had put it in here, a very important story about the supply chain crisis related to business class travel. Mm-hmm. And I actually was in a middle seat on a business class. You poor thing. Does this exist? I mean, when did this happen? Is it like a COVID byproduct? How can you be in a middle seat on a business class situation? I was very upset. Of course, I slept like a baby. That's not really the issue. I'm just imagining you and like Martha Stewart being in the same cell together in prison. It's like, you call this quiche? (laughs) She really gave me great advice. Yeah. So there is a glut of business class seats because people are so excited to travel again. A glut. A glut. Like a supply chain glut. There's too many or too little. too much demand for too few seats. A glut is too many. So what they've actually... A glut means too many of a thing. You know what I meant. There is... Anyway, they found a solution. The solution is that they're just going to start putting people in the economy in with the luggage. You'll have more legroom. Crickets? 
<laughs> anyway, that's that's it for dad jokes. I do think there's a very important thing we do need to talk about, which is uh, Microsoft has done a survey, very important survey, and it turns out bosses think workers do less from home, and workers think they're totally productive. Data shows that 80% of individuals think they're very productive, and management thinks they're not very productive. This is a news flash. This took a survey of one of the largest companies on the planet. So I think everybody, you think you're productive at home. We know you're doing laundry. We know you're eating three and four and five meals during the day. Hey, you got to carve up. <laughs> as one of my former supervisors, I'm kind of like unsettled that you're looking at me as you're talking to me about this. Is there a hidden meeting? I defy every boss who's listening to tell me what their folks are doing when they're at the office. They should be able to tell you because they are rearranging their <laughs> they plans. They don't know. They they're have no idea. Plans. No, because they're on conference calls. That's what you call them now? Zoom? What is it called? Zoom? That's a Mazda commercial. Or Kia. <laughs> Actually, I do have some listener feedback. I was in a uh, I was in a meeting, and one of my colleagues said, I'm going to reveal something about Rob. I was like, oh, that's interesting. What are you going to reveal? She says, he also has a podcast, and I listen to it sometimes when I'm running. Okay, hey, now. And then she kind of mimed running. Uh, but not the podcast. But it was terrifying. I didn't realize anybody was listening. I'm getting surprised more and more in person. I'm, we get the emails fairly often, but when it's people that you've run into and it's not in your head, but they're like, hey, I heard you on the podcast. I'm like, you were listening to me. I think we should be very careful with that. I think people may be listening. It's kind of creepy. <laughs> so, and I obviously don't listen to the episodes before they come out. So I'm going to need to start. Or after they come out. Because <laughs> you're the talent. No, no. Many times after they come out, I do listen to them at some point. You're the talent. So everybody, while Rob was busy quiet quitting these past four weeks, quite a lot has happened. So I guess we'll just jump right into it. I won't say the segment name because you're probably bored of it already. But first is a race to the bottom. We're talking a lot about how central banks have been hiking interest rates in the shortest amount of time or competing to who can do it in the shortest amount of time. Many are worried about what this might mean for smaller economies around the world, particularly developing economies. Hint, the US will probably be fine. The rest of the world, not so much. I think most central banks have baked in, sort of talked about recession and lower growth and tougher jobs markets into their thinking, or at least what they're saying publicly. So we can kind of expect that at this point. What we're seeing now also, as I mentioned to you before, is that developing countries are getting harder hit. We had talked about last episode how there was a potential food crisis on the horizon. It doesn't seem to have materialized as badly as we thought. But there's still sort of a lot to be worried about on that front. I don't know what you think about this, Rob. I know you're American, so you're slightly biased. Hashtag winning. No, I do think we, the strong dollar, as we know, it has a very perverse effect on trade and on economies around the world because trade is denominated in dollars. So everything becomes more expensive, pushes up inflation in other economies. That having been said, I think the U.S. had to do something because inflation had gotten, what is it, 7 8%. A lot. Um, it was a lot. A real bunch. And also, we have so many other things that are kind of bouncing around. We had food prices that went up. They're not having come all the way down. We had energy prices that really spiked. So I think we have a lot of things interacting, but I do agree that the biggest effect right now on trade that we can anticipate is just slower growth or negative growth, as we call it. <laughs> I mean, I think in some perverse way, America, as we hinted at, will probably be fine. The U.S., it just seems that they are exporting, which is sort of a little bit of irony. They're finally exporting something, and that is inflation to the rest of the world and higher prices. So I think there was a Bloomberg or FT article at some point the last day or two saying how Americans are now looking to buy up Rolexes in the UK because they have turned the crash of the pound. So I think another area that we should probably look at and is one that was on our radar was 
we call this news item, Call Me By Your Name. And that is industrial policy for all you Army Hammer fans out there. <laughs> so the goal of a specific provision of the Inflation Reduction Act recently passed in the U.S. is to bolster U.S. jobs, strengthen the resilience of domestic supply chains, and reduce, this is a key point probably, reduce its dependence on China for critical materials. That all sounds great, particularly if you're in the U.S. However, the EU, South Korea, and Japan, among others, are furious because they say that the law's sourcing requirements disadvantage their car and battery manufacturers. Uh, and these sort of manufacturers still remain dependent on Chinese inputs. That's why they're so angry. So we're seeing trade being used as a cover for national security interests yet again. And we're seeing again the ramification of this. That said, there are still some um, exceptions that will most likely be made for countries that I mentioned, like South Korea, Japan, and the EU as well, for them to not be affected by the specific provision. But that said, China is not happy, surprisingly, for many I know. They've said that the actual rule discriminates similar imported goods, quote unquote, and is a suspected breach of WTO principles. For me, that's... Um, Isn't it ironic? Isn't it ironic? <laughs> no, I mean, I do think the EU, South Korea, and Japan are right. But we know the U.S. has put in elements on this electric vehicle legislation that cannot be satisfied by any car. So that there will be simply no cars that will satisfy these requirements. So they'll have to find exceptions in order to even have an electric vehicle supply chain that can somehow receive the subsidies. So I do think it's kind of an example of, you said it was in a way that it was trade leading geopolitics, I think it's the other way around. You know, we have actually things that are don't make good sense in terms of policy, the way they're written. They have to be written in such a way that they try to get around WTO requirements and so on. But they're clearly geopolitically driven. And so we have this fragmentation that's now being kind of built in or baked into subsidies and to domestic legislation. So let's see how it happens. I don't think on the face of it, supporting U.S. industry is a bad thing or supporting U.S.-based industry if we're going to do it in a way that's non-discriminatory and WTO compliant. Sorry, WTO. About that. Sorry, not sorry. Who you are. <laughs> but, but I'm not sure we're writing good policy at this stage, even for friend shoring, buddy shoring, you know. Uh, so let's see. But it is industrial policy by another name. And it's industrial policy that's cloaked in this kind of geopolitical issue. But this article you shared is actually quite interesting about how the single fiber is now being more predominant because of EU regulations. So it's yeah. showing how supply chains are shifting around new and upcoming regulations. Right. So I, I think people always say it's the end of the world, but trade uh, finds a way to go. Uh, Jeff Gold. Jeff Gold. <laughs> I don't know. That's just my hot take on it. This is something you had said a bit earlier, which is that China's ambassador to the U.S. warned that the potential risk of trying to cut out China out of the EV plan are, are high, saying that, quote unquote, the electric vehicle supply chain is very globalized. I'm pretty sure that Rob had alluded to that before. We heard it here first. Thank you, Chinese ambassador, for the uh, shout out. Regurgitating whatever Rob said on that. <laughs> podcast. <laughs> and trade guys. Sorry, they also said that. Speaking of China, so the Belt and Road Initiative was something that was quite talked about in the past decade, but now we're moving on to something that's been called Belt and Road 2.0, or at least what we here at Trade Slang like to call the Chinese version of doing the same thing you were doing before. But <laughs> yes, exactly. Name. <laughs> so a combination of a slowing global economy, this is combined with rising interest rates and higher inflation has left countries struggling to repay their debts to China as part of this Belt and Road Initiative. So tens of billions of dollars of loans have gone sour, for lack of a better word, and a number of development projects have stalled. 
I think Western leaders in the past have already criticized China's lending practices. They've labeled the quote-unquote debt trap diplomacy, etc. Many economists and investors who are less subjective in their reasoning have said that the country's lending has contributed to debt crisis in places like Sri Lanka and Zambia. So we're seeing a shift because of not geopolitical, but global economic situation. China is now pulling back a little bit. They're being a bit more strict on what they lend, how they lend, and the terms under which they're lending. Because up until this point, they were sort of just extending the loan duration period while not actually reducing the principal that was to be paid back, etc. So we're seeing a rethink here. Some have said that they'll be stricter with how they're lending. Now, what the effects of this are, we're not sure because some have said that there's a geopolitical angle to it. So a lot of the countries that have received money or loans from China under this Belt and Road have actually also voted with China at the UN on a number of occasions. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting. So over the period between 2013, 2017, the Chinese were lending nearly $100 billion a year. This is good. This is really good money. It's a lot of money. And they were doing things that were actually going to change trade routes in a way. So they're building a port in Pakistan. They're building rail and road routes to that port. And we've heard a lot about Sri Lanka ports and airports and so on that maybe don't make sense. But I think they, they were actually pulling in a different direction towards more smoother trade. Remember, they were also looking for a rail route into Europe. So they were doing a lot of things that I think made trade more fluid, but also, of course, had a geopolitical element. We know that. They did want more influence. And I think it's fair to say they were also inexperienced about how to manage this and so on. So they've got a lot of bad markers out there. So for me, it's not a super shock to see that this is being pulled back a little bit. And let's see where it goes from here. Maybe it's just a rationalization of it. Speaking of news articles, unions are back. Discussed <laughs> <laughs> how unions got their groove back by Rob Skidmore. I think this is really significant. Now, maybe, maybe it's a U.S. phenomenon, but it's also a U.K. phenomenon. So we're getting closer to full employment. We have, I think, a rising consciousness. You have people who are quiet, quitting, and other things. We'll talk about that in a minute because they have the option to switch and they have the option to be whatever, less productive, less panicked. Their bargaining power is increasing. Yeah. So we have people voting at Starbucks. We have people voting at Amazon we've talked about. We have people voting at the tractor manufacturers. We have services companies. We have all sorts of different companies that are voting to unionize. And I think at least for a U.S. context, it's not the wrong thing to do. Participation in unions in the U.S. plummeted since the 70s. So now it's in single digits. Thank you, Jimmy Hoffa. And it's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Go to the New Jersey Giants Stadium. He's actually buried under MetLife Stadium. <laughs> right under the gold Google the people. Anyway, we know that union participation is too low. We know unions do have an effect on, apart from being irritating and sometimes perhaps not handling the money all that well. Or the former. That <laughs> They had this effect of keeping real wages high and supporting a better life for workers. As that declined, real wages in the U.S. declined, power of labor declined, and you know, globalization was kind of like Pac-Man. You sound like a socialist. Thank you, New School. <laughs> but anyway, so I think it's a rebalancing, and I'm not against it. I think the same thing has happened in the U.K. There's already things coming. And uh, in France, it's like another Wednesday. Twas ever thus. It's, yeah. it's just another Wednesday. Oh, there's a strike. Oh, otherwise our garbage is not picked up. Oh, it's Wednesday. <laughs> I think this is just my very brief two cents. The older I get, I kind of see that history is going, trends tend to go back and forth. So they sort of ricochet. So from one extreme to another, roughly speaking, I think this is just another example. So we're at a situation or economic situation where unions are able to have more bargaining power, as you talked about, and it just makes it easier for them to do things like strike or they're more relevant in the zeitgeist, if you will. And this also probably comes on top of these 40 years, as you said, of this experiment. But let me take you to another step here, okay. which is the future of work. I'm Balduino, 
is listening. Hashtag, we know that. Hashtag Baldwin was right. We talked about the future of work. We said Rob's job is more likely to be out automated very soon. Correction. He talked. We listened. <laughs> hey, Rob. So you're asking the wrong question, he said. <laughs> so a combination of full employment, you know, inflation, quiet quitting, strength of the dollar. And this was Frank. Don't forget this was Frank. So the, you know, the future works kind of moving forward more remote work visas and so on. Where are we with the future of work? Are, is it going to be fully remote? Or are we going to all be working from St. Lucia? I don't know, but I know that watches are cheaper now in the EU because, because of inflation and the Swiss franc. I think we've seen <laughs> quantitatively, if you're just looking at the numbers empirically, you've seen that the number of remote work visas has been increasing. I don't want to say exponentially, but I'm going to say exponentially. Go ahead. the pandemic. Say exponentially. <laughs> Even though it's not exponential growth. So there have been at least 30 countries that have added these remote visa programs since 2020, and there are at least 10 or 12 more that are on the way. And they're vying for a larger and larger pool of these sort of expatriate workers or remote workers. In the U.S., there's at least 15 and a half million of these quote-unquote digital nomads. And I want to congratulate whoever came up with that. So this is more than double than 2019. So we've seen this is a trend that's growing. And I think we started off the podcast talking quite a lot about COVID because we were in COVID. And I think this is just another example of how COVID has sort of added nitrous oxide to the fire that is sort of this trend. And I think we're seeing it sped up more and more. So these folks you're talking about are the most competitive workers. So I think the unions and these guys are probably on two sides of this debate. So the digital nomads go anywhere, they work anywhere, they're competitive anywhere. And the unions are really fighting for the better wages on Staten Island in an Amazon fulfillment center. That is the heart of it, actually. I'm glad you mentioned Staten Island because I didn't have to now. Uh, <laughs> Caroline Freund is the dean of the UC San Diego School of Global Public Policy and Strategy. Prior to joining GPS, she served as a global director of trade, investment, and competitiveness at the World Bank. My old job. She also served as a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics and began her career in the International Finance Division of the Federal Reserve Board. She has been the author of Rich People, Poor Countries, The Rise of Emerging Market Tycoons and Their Mega Firms. She's also been co-director of the World Bank's flagship World Development Report 2020 on global value chains. Her work's appeared in a lot of places, many academic journals, American Economic Review, Quarterly Journal of Economics. I'm sure you've all seen that one, Review of Economics and Statistics. Trades Planning. Journal of International Economics. And of course, Journal of Development Economics. So Caroline, thanks for joining us on this episode. Why don't you let us know where this interview finds you? I'm in San Diego. I'm the Dean of the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UC San Diego. Excellent. So that's Ron Burgundy's old, uh, old stomping grounds. Yeah. For American viewers, they'll know. For everybody else, you'll just have to Google it. So w why don't we delve right into the serious stuff? Caroline, we hear a lot lately about the end of globalization, quote unquote. What are your thoughts on this? We've been asking quite a few of our guests this lately, since it's been in the news and uh, we've seen a lot of headlines on this. Is this a correct diagnosis or is it too sort of presumptuous to jump to a conclusion like that? Yeah, in my view, it's too presumptuous. So global trade was at a record $28.5 trillion in 2021. So we're sitting here talking about the end of globalization while trade is surging, while here in California, we had all those container ships stuck at the ports trying to come in. Lots of demand for goods, supply chains, very dependent on intermediates from other countries. So it's everywhere but in the data. And what do you think people, they're saying this, and we'll come back to what it might mean, but what do they mean by globalization? Because it's a it's kind of a catch-all. 
Yeah, so that's a great question. So what I just responded to really was about goods trade and where you did see the bigger decline was on services travel during COVID, but it's coming back pretty strongly now. But there's also other forms of globalization, financial flows, and as well as data. And data's really been surging. So when you watch a video that was made in a different country and you're streaming it, or when you play video games with people from another country, or translation services, transcription services that can take place in other countries. There's all this data crossing borders now that's actually been surging. And with that data goes ideas. So the flow of ideas and news has really never been stronger across borders than it is now. So let's say globalization is not ending and you make kind of a good argument for that. So it feels like something's changing. We hear about, we talk about fragmentation, we talk about different camps developing and so on. So if it's not globalization, is it the nature of supply chains? It feels like geopolitical considerations may be distorting things a little more. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that it's politics more than economics. So the economic fundamentals remain for globalization, produce goods where they can be produced most efficiently. The political forces are different now. There's, of course, tensions between the U.S. and China that's leading to policies that are impeding trade. And then there's Russia being isolated from the Western economies. That's also part of a reshaping of trade flows more than a deglobalization. So it seems like we've been missing this political element for, I don't know, 20, 30 years or maybe a little bit more, let's say since the early 90s. Is it the exception to the rule or is this something that we need to get used to? We've been looking at it from a very technocratic point of view. So economics are the be all and end all. And in many cases, that's true. However, I feel like we, at least my generation, has become accustomed to things like this not happening in our lifetimes. Yeah, no, I think it is. And I think you could imagine one path where these political strains continue, eventually feed into really stringent policies, and there is a reshaping. We could also imagine a world where some governments might change, some of the tensions might ease, and we go back more to business as usual. And then there's probably more of what at least is going to happen for the foreseeable future, which is a kind of muddling along where the government talks one set of policies and business does another set of actions, which is what we're seeing. Now. Yeah, I guess this kind of muddling along is the uncertainty we're talking about. And I guess this, it's having a destructive effect on value. So we see tech stocks going down, my 401k is cratered, for instance, and so on. Rob um, no longer calls it his portfolio. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm going to sue somebody later. But so I think that may be the kind of thing that we're seeing that this muddling along. I think we ask a little bit, what does one do in this kind of circumstances? I mean, is there a kind of rational way to deal with all this without seeing, I guess, without exaggerating these developments or should we exaggerate? It's time to panic. Well, I think the problem is that this tremendous, tremendous uncertainty feeds into a delay of action. So if you don't know what the state of the world is going to look like next year, I don't know if they're going to be so afraid of inflation, they remove the tariffs on China in the US, or they're going to be so afraid of China that they expand the tariffs on China. So I'm a business, what do I do? I don't know if the future means maybe tensions ease or maybe tensions worsen. The best thing for me to do is wait, because rather than make investments that if it goes in the wrong direction are going to not be meaningful in the future, 
that I might as well just wait and see what the world looks like. I guess from listening to all of this, it seems I'm not one of those people who believe that globalization is ending, quote unquote, but I think paradigms are sort of shifting and the way we've understood, whether it's global politics or global economics or geopolitics in general, is changing. Now, my question, since you're the dean of San Diego, of the school there, what's different about how you teach students now? So they're entering a much different world to the one that you or Rob entered into, or even myself, about a decade ago. How do you prepare them for this? As I said, all of these old sort of paradigm shifting. Well, I think there's a few things we focus on now a lot more than we did when I was in school. And so as a trade economist, we focused on the gains from trade when I was in school. So the comparative advantage is everything. And if U.S. produces what they have comparative advantage in and China produces what they have comparative advantage in and we trade, the whole big pie gets bigger. Everyone's better off in, you know, it's all great. And I think we always knew there were distributional consequences, but because the pie was bigger, we said, oh, yeah, yeah, those can be addressed with this bigger pie. So I think one thing is this real focus on inequality, on populations that have been left behind, especially the U.S. and other Anglo countries. Another thing I think we focus more on is climate. So when I was in school, I can't remember any friend studying or working on climate economics. And now it's huge. It's a big part of our curriculum here at GPS. We need the planet. And we really see the damage environmentally, economically, and to our livelihoods. And then finally, we shouldn't base policy just on what's theoretically right or what people think, but we need to really bring data and evidence and show it will be effective in practice. And I wanted to ask you one follow-up on policy. So in pandemic, we had this change in policy where we could even provide a kind of basic income almost to people. And I thought at the time, we're opening up pathways to policies we never would have considered before. And I wonder if maybe those pathways have changed or closed. So we go back to the same kind of limitations. Yeah, I think we are opening up policies. We're in a period where we went through extensive deregulation. And during the pandemic, it's hard to be a libertarian. So I think the one thing everybody could agree on is the government had to do something, whether it was investing in vaccines, giving people money, helping to support businesses, the government had to step in. And now we can see how effective those policies are or aren't. And just as the 70s oil shock led to a shift and inflation and stagflation led to a shift away from overregulation to deregulation. This shock may lead to a shift away from free markets toward more government intervention. Yeah, in many ways, which may have been which may have been delayed. Maybe it was coming, but it, it was kind of an accelerator. Yeah, but so it's really, yeah. accelerated it. The thing is finding the right balance. So we don't necessarily need more regulation, but we need more state involvement to protect the most vulnerable. So it's where you focus that state involvement. So with the deregulation, you also need policies that help to support people that might be affected by any given shock. The one thing that I would just add to all this type of discussion is in the sense of it being an unusual period, we're in a period of inflationary pressure which has to push towards globalization. So with globalization came that long period of falling prices. And now when we're in a period of high inflation, talking about deglobalization just seems impossible to me. I think one evidence of that is that when Janet Yellen in the same week talked about friendshoring and removing the tariffs to China because of inflationary pressures and that that would help. 
So these two policies are directly contradictory. So governments are really stuck. And so it's hard for me to imagine deglobalization happening. Well, I think that brings us to, we'll just call it the global focus part of the interview. Caroline, so you're in San Diego, as you told us. The movie Anchorman was set there. This is one of mine and Rob's favorite movies, and probably all of America's favorite movies from the early 2000s. How accurately do you think does it depict the city of San Diego? Well, all I remember from that movie around San Diego is that Burgundy said it's the greatest city in the history of mankind. So having lived here now for a little less than a year, I think I might agree because having... 365 days of perfect weather is super fun when you were born in Chicago and lived most of your life in the Northeast. So it is a fantastic, fantastic city. There's a reason Chicago is not called the sunny city. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, the movie was made in the early 2000s, and I think San Diego has grown quite a lot. The University of California, San Diego is huge here. We have the naval base. We have really fast growing biotech industry. Qualcomm is based here. It's a much more cosmopolitan city than that movie would lead you to believe. So just kind of building on that, we're trying to wonder how everybody could surf to work in both directions. I've heard this happens. Is it true? Is it Rob wants to know? Yeah, could that be true? We see a surfboard in the back of the video. Yeah, you know, I had to learn to surf when I got here so that I could get to work. And that meant that I missed the first month, but uh, here I am now. It looks exceptionally difficult. I haven't tried it yet. I was also going to say, I guess those of us who don't live in San Diego say, isn't it great to have four seasons? That's one of the tropes, but maybe it is. Uh, There's a statue of Frankie Valley there somewhere in San Diego. <laughs> So yes. I guess we know the answer between which is a better commute, San Diego or, or the Beltway, where they, you're, I guess you're just running over people. Yeah, the Beltway commute was from this traffic in D.C. Because apparently everybody just goes around in a circle. This that was a Beltway yeah, joke. That yeah. was such well, a bad joke. Welcome, welcome to Staten Island. So <laughs> hopefully this will be a slightly less uh, painful. Kebab is like the national food of Geneva. So what's your favorite kebab place in Geneva? They're, it's probably Parfum de Beirut. I spent a lot of time in Geneva, but I always get taken out to really nice restaurants. I haven't been to a kebab place in Geneva, sorry. Wow, this does not compute. Well, the Beach Boys are from San Diego, uh, from California, I think. <laughs> so we can just make a song called Kebab Baran. And you can make that UC San Diego's. <laughs> you can make you, that UC San Diego's uh, theme song. Yeah, you are really back, Artie. I think you're really back. Yeah, we don't have a lot of kebabs in San Diego, at all unfortunately, but we do have a lot of tacos fans everywhere in San Diego. The similar question here would be, which is your favorite tacos fan? That reminds me, Top Gun is set in Miramar, oh. which is near San Diego. So, which is your favorite Top Gun? The first one or the second one? <laughs> I haven't seen the second one yet, but they're both set here. Although Top Gun was here when the first one was set, but has since moved, but they decided to film the second one here, you really want to be able to fly out over that glorious cliffs and ocean of, of San Diego. So I'm looking forward to seeing the second one, and then I will tell you. It's kind of a little bit embarrassing. They actually outsourced with northern Mexico. We don't know where it is. Okay, very good. And I think we need to make a commitment that if you do come back to Geneva we will take you out to not a nice restaurant. 
Okay, and I would like to try both. So I can give the, the, That's fair, great, fair. The great thing is they're literally right next to each other. Yeah. Oh, okay. So they're like the feuding kebab stands in Geneva. Right. Which one is your favorite? Both of us like Alamir. Everybody would like Parfum de Beirut. That's obvious, just quality-wise. <laughs> and also food safety, just from a food safety standpoint. So, And then, of course, when we come to San Diego, you'll do some research and you'll be able to recommend we'll the taco stand by then. Yeah, I exactly. want to go to the restaurant Ron Burgundy played the jazz flute at. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, on that happy note, Caroline, thank you for joining the podcast. And we want you to know that we want you to come on again because you can be our wingman anytime. Oh, okay. Wing- or wingwoman, excuse me. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah. Thanks a lot. And if people want to go and see stuff you're doing or they want to learn more about your work, where would they go? To the GPS website. Okay. That's the UC San Diego School for Global Policy, Policy and Strategy. Yeah. Yep. Very good. Excellent. Caroline, thanks once again and hope to talk to you soon. Thanks. This was fun. So that brings us to our normal segment where Michelle takes us through the end of Globalization Watch. Michelle, is globalization finally over? Well, actually, Rob, globalization might be back and not over at all. And you're not going to believe it, but crypto might actually be saving it. Well, at least for a super small part of the population, and that's people building computers, or more specifically, people who need GPUs. What's a GPU, you ask? It's a graphics processing unit. Do you have to care what that means? Not really. I know. I it's... saw this in Terminator. I know. <laughs> yeah, that's an integral part of the Terminator. The point is, it's just a super important part of the computer. Actually, you probably read about it while looking at, up the stats for your computer, pretending you know what that meant, but you didn't really. Guilty. Yeah. You do that? Yep, I, yeah. Of course. I want the RAM, the 400 I RAM. I use all of it. Yeah. I use the buttons, the keyboard a lot. <laughs> I certainly don't know what it means. So I went to the streets to find someone who has gone through some ups and downs in the GPU market. So I recently acquired a GPU for a computer and it was easier to purchase one nowadays than it used to be before. We are seeing more and more availability on retailers and even on platforms like Amazon. In terms of price, while we are still a little bit higher than the recommended retail price for a lot of brands, the prices are much fairer too than they used to be back when probably like a year ago or a year and a half ago when all the supply chain issues really started because of COVID. So nowadays you can find GPUs for decent prices, you know, not, not exactly super great deals, but something acceptable. Apparently my interviewer wanted to remain anonymous. I don't really know why. Maybe he's in some shady GPU deals. But the point is that, as you can hear, prices are getting better and better. And sure, a part of it is getting over the pandemic supply chain issues, but it's also crypto. Hawaii, we have seen positive price changes and it does have a little bit to do with crypto mining. There is a lot of demand for GPUs dedicated for mining stuff like Ether or even Bitcoin, other cryptocurrencies. And as we see the price of these assets go down, then it becomes less profitable for people to just bulk buy a bunch of GPUs and have them farm cryptocurrency. If at the end they're going to make less money, you know, their prices of acquiring these and the electricity, the consumption, it just becomes less and less profitable for them, meaning that there are more available GPUs for the rest of us to buy. So that's something positive. If you're into crypto mining, you probably know a little bit about this big shift from proof of work to proof of stake. To simplify everything, proof of work requires your computer to work, which needs a lot of processing power from this mythical GPU thing. And proof of stake, it's pretty much kind of like companies bidding on a contract, but the other way or the opposite way. And while you need a lot of Bitcoins to do that, you don't really need a GPU. So now GPUs are falling from the sky. To quote Arnold Insert. Schwarzenegger, they're obsolete. 
<laughs> and well, funny enough, it seems that for the coming months, there might actually be an oversupply of GPUs since, as I said, there was an effect on crypto mining on the market, but also the fact that the supply chains were completely disrupted. And there was actually a shortage for not only GPUs, but every, like the, the semiconductors and chips were hard to acquire. Even cars were struggling there for a second. Also like for the onboard, but with the production of new GPUs, new models are going to come out. Actually, it seems that some constructors like Nvidia actually overestimated how much GPUs it would be selling. So now, for instance, they're trying to postpone the launch of their new models and it's even expected to have an oversupply maybe in the coming months. Of course, that's, I didn't want to risk and wait anymore for it. So I just, I found one that was suitable for me and I just got it. Of course, this shift isn't certain yet. Miners could still move on to another cryptocurrency that still makes them use their precious GPU and do work. And of course, use a ton of electricity. But with rewards for crypto mining going down, we might be getting into a perfect storm where miners leave the huge crypto farms behind and gamers can go back to building computers. The balance in the universe will be restored. And it will restore also our belief in globalization. And GPUs. Thank you very much, Michelle. And thank you to my anonymous interviewee. That takes us to the end of the end of globalization segment. And I'm sure you'll keep an eye on it for us for the next big broadcast. Hey, Rob, why is your phone broken again? Well, these drought conditions mean it slipped out of my hand and broke. Another expensive thing for me to fix. Well, Rob, you wouldn't have had this problem if you used Case Folklore. Case Folklore? What's that? Good thing you asked, Rob. Case Folklore offers customizable phone cases which come in an assortment of designs and colors. You can find out more by checking out their Instagram page at Case Folklore or using the promo code SPLAINING at checkout. That brings us to this week in local news. You wouldn't believe this was true unless you lived in Geneva or, as we know, anywhere else. Anywhere else. So the first thing we're going to talk about is a vote that the Swiss had on September 25th. One of the issues was voting for or against intensive livestock farming. They were talking about eradicating factory farming, and it really brought Swiss meat into question. So do you want to talk to us about your first vote ever as a Swiss citizen? Yeah, this was my first vote ever. I had a hard choice to make because it was yeah. either voting my conscience or saving my marriage. Yeah. So it was pretty much either voting how my <laughs> wife wanted to vote. Yeah. Uh, particularly as I had to decide. It's it not was, a secret ballot type situation. No, no. It's literally, let me see what you checked off. Yes. Situation. <laughs> <laughs> the choice came down to raising the woman's uh, retirement age or filing for a divorce. So I'll let listeners guess which way I voted. So I would, I would call it a non-secret ballot. Like yeah, more I mean, of a family ballot. I mean, I mean, we had to. We, raise you voted home. It came in an envelope. We had to raise the retirement age. You didn't try to sneak around and vote in the bathroom or and, something. And that's why we're recording this podcast from my closet. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> we're, we're recording from the garage, folks. <laughs> so, like most Swiss voters, I do not know what I was voting on, and I was a low information voter, as we say back home in the U.S. But and after the brochure, you were a high information voter. I was a less lower than or a medium information voter yeah medium rare and so of course i voted with my heart which was yay factory farming again i don't know because my wife (laughs) (laughs) you know i I hope the swiss voting authorities aren't aware of this oh oh, no no, i'm joking obviously and i'm winking at all the listeners as i say this winking Yeah. Okay. I think we'll talk about the trade aspects of this a little bit later. Perhaps more importantly, there's an issue which you're calling, we're going to need a bigger plate. World record has been broken. 
uh, folks, maybe you weren't aware of it. In Switzerland, they've cooked the largest rushti, which is a national dish. It's grated potatoes. It's basically hash browns, people. It's, hey, please. It's a fancy way please. of saying hash browns. I was so excited to eat rushti. And then when I saw it, I was like, we, we have these at McDonald's. Sorry, but this is offensive. In any case, giant rushti used 1,350 kilograms of potatoes. No idea how much that is. That stretched about 3,000 separate portions. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a whole bunch. And apparently they were being served in the Parliament Square in Bern, which I've seen on the news mostly. And perhaps most disturbing to me is a burner rushti normally has ham and a pickle and a tomato, but I didn't see that. I didn't see that in evidence. That does worry me. I don't know where to go with this because I don't eat ham. Um, and I'm, I, and I'm agnostic on, and I'm agnostic. You want to be Swiss. I'm agnostic on pickles. And you want to be Swiss. I, I am too late. Well, no. <laughs> there was a big rusty. A world record was broken. Folks don't know about it. And we do need a bigger plate. But what I'm more excited about is the next bit that we want to talk about. My cousin used to lead every conversation with America first, but they can't do that anymore because U.S. News and World Report has Switzerland ranked first and America fourth. I don't know how to feel about this. I feel kind of torn. I feel like I'm in between a rock and something else. Something else. Some say a hard place. Some say Trump Tower. I don't know. Let me talk to you a little bit about the rankings. So we have the Swiss, the Germans, the Canadians, the Swedes, the Japanese, the Australians. Fine. And then throw in there two little wild cards. The U.S. is at fourth and the U.K., which we know is actually just sunk into the water and everybody drowned. 90 million people just drowned. <laughs> is seven. What criteria get you there? How does the U.S. end up fourth when Sweden is third? I mean, here are some of the things. Adventure, agility, cultural influence, heritage, like what, open a, for business. I'm sorry, cultural <laughs> agility. There's a I reason mean, why you can eat a hamburger everywhere, and that's because... I'm America. culturally agile? America. Is that what it was? Yeah. I think because... U.S. news is located in the U.S. It's just like a lot of business rankings start in Switzerland, like yeah. IMD. The Swiss always end up in the top five. You sound like a QAnon guy. You're like, it's no coincidence that it's the U.S. <laughs> news and world report. Read the news, people. Excuse me. Have you lived in the U.S.? Do you think it's number four? People. <laughs> well, we know which way Rob's leading people. That about does it for this week in local news. We'll keep our eye on developing news stories. U.S. News and World Report, do better. Well, folks, that about wraps up episode 38, brought to you by Inflation, the future of work, which now seems a little bit like the now of work. I'm quite quitting this segment. Swiss meat, and of course, strontium. We also want to thank our guest, Caroline Freund, once again for joining us, as well as our executive producer and White House correspondent, even though she's never been there yet, Michelle Olguin and Valentina Saponara for helping him produce this episode. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already to make sure you catch our next episode coming out fairly soon, sooner than the last one, if Rob is not traveling. I'm traveling next week. You can find us anywhere you get your podcast, literally anywhere. So stop asking me, people. Apple Podcasts. Where can I find the podcast? Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, anywhere. Can I find it on my phone? You can, and you can also leave us a review on your phone on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow us on Twitter at Tradesplaining or on Instagram at Trade.Splaining. Or email us your questions, comments, the old-fashioned way at trade.splaining at gmail.com. Once again, that's trade.splaining at gmail.com. And remember, folks, listen responsibly. And eat the roshti.